Welcome, everyone, to Conspiracy Dimensions. We have a unique and special show tonight. Normally, we will do a topic that's going to be a conspiracy-style topic, or we will do some type of paranormal. But tonight's topic is about a person named Aleister Crowley, which is going to combine both of those together. And the reason why we picked him is because we just finished up with MK Ultra and Charles Manson, and we were showing how there was a lot of connections between somebody who seemed like a very unusual, uh, very, you know, malicious person but yet heavily connected to american cia intelligence so what we wanted to do is we wanted to do a topic of alistair crowley so for those who don't know alistair crowley was an occultist and he was suggested after his death that he was actually tied to british intelligence specifically mi6 so from there what i want to do is just give kind of a basic of who this guy was so he grew up in england and he was in a wealthy family they were part owners of a brewery they had a decent amount of money his father however was a very very hardcore strict uh i can't think of the name i think it was puritan christian or something like that so basically it was an entire life of just very strict living and denial now unfortunately his father passed away when he was young i believe he was 11 years old when it happened and he got a little rambunctious and without his father around anymore now he was a little more wild and he gradually adopted the nickname of the beast and it was because his mother used to call him that as a child and he got a kick out of it being the rebellious teen so throughout his life you know he was, how it came to this how's that ralph um uh, he catched the disease uh, when he was 12 years old one year after his father died and the doctor said uh your son will uh, not be cured he's gonna die from this so they uh, or his mom sent him to the uncle which was the complete opposite of uh, the family uh, alistair came from his uncle was uh, you could say a man of party. He took the 12-year-old uh, Alistair because he thought like, okay, the, the kid is going to die soon. Let's make him at least the man before. Okay. So he took him to pubs and bought alcohol for him and uh, paid a <laughs> prostitute to take uh, his virginity away. So Alistair uh, realized that all what was prayed at home was not true he could sin as much as he wanted and god is not punishing him for this and then after a while he got uh, checked by the doctors again and the doctor said like oh um something uh, has happened or the first diagnosis was wrong but uh, the disease is not there anymore so he went back to his mother of course, it changed a uh, uh, person. And this was a huge conflict between the, the okay. fundamental uh, Christian mom and him who saw the pubs and the prostitutes. Gotcha. So that's where that beast title came from. Exactly. <laughs> gotcha. Very cool. And um, just so everyone else knows, he also... At, that's a pretty you know tough story to start with but he was also a very highly intelligent person 
and he was a bit of a thrill seeker. So he was smart enough to actually go to Cambridge. I don't believe he graduated, but there were stories about when he was there that there was uh, one personal story that I remember in somebody's writings where he had met the chess professor at Cambridge and the chess professor taught him how to play and played him a few times. And then after a couple of times, wasn't able to beat him again. And Alistair was incredibly smart. So in his schooling, he was getting very disillusioned by the schooling because it was what we complain about the education system now, where it's just regurgitating the same information over and over. He wanted to know more of the meaning of life, more of what is out there. So he started his own journey seeking those kind of things. He wanted to know what is really the meaning of life. It was a big problem when he was younger with his uh, Christian family side because he would have a lot of scripture questions and nobody wanted to answer them. And it wasn't good enough for him. So on top of that, he was also, like I said, the thrill seeker. He was a mountaineer too. So he actually got a chance to go around the world. And uh, he had, at the time, he attempted, I think it was the K2, and reached the highest point that anyone had ever done prior to that. So he was, he was quite an interesting guy, just to say the least. From there, his life is a very comple- complex one and very complicated. So throughout this, he finally got a break in trying to seek the esoteric information that he wanted the real what's going on in you know what what is the meaning of life what is this universe and he got that through a society called golden dawn now there was also uh ralph was just informing me that there was speculation that the british intelligence actually got him in there because this isn't uh, a society like that an esoteric group that has a lodge or a temple or something along those lines you can't just knock on their door and say hey i want to join you have to be chosen and you have to be initiated by someone else and they have to put their reputation down to get you in that door so when that happened he started meeting a lot of the aristocracy and a lot of the more important and influential people of his time the reason he was accepted was because he was highly intelligent to begin with they don't just take anybody into these kind of groups ralph did you want to touch on that of getting him into golden dawn yes uh after he quit university in cambridge or I think he was kicked out because he, he had a party there with prostitutes and <laughs> he catched sexual disease and it was all a little bit too much for, for the people in Cambridge. So uh, he moved to uh, Switzerland and there he met a chemist uh, called uh, Julian L. Baker and he was member of the Golden Dawn. And he took him back to London, where he got introduced to George Cecil Jones, Jones the uh, head of uh, the Golden Dawn. And from this on, he became more or less the, the, uh, the, the, the second uh, highest uh, ranking member of this society over the time at that time and this also for our listeners who know this is not unusual for british intelligence or somebody along the lines of a government leadership 
to use somebody who is a mystic like this. We've seen it throughout history. It's just like uh, Rasputin was a mystic that worked for the Imperial Romanov family. And John Dee worked for Queen, Queen Elizabeth. And he was a mystic also. So this wasn't unusual, but they only picked the best of the best. And this guy was really good at what he did. I will say this, though. And Bevo was saying that he was having some a hard time finding some really good information online about this guy this guy wrote upwards around something like 80 manuscripts over the course of his life i've read a ton of them he is probably one of the most influential authors i have ever read when you read his work the kind of background of uh, esoteric work he was doing made his writings the most incredible stuff that you will ever read because it was like as if you were seeing somebody who was like a highly intelligent artist that painted a picture and everybody looks at it and just gets the most incredible mental rush from looking at someone's picture this person's writing was the same way however <laughs> In, during his time in Golden Dawn, and to give our listeners an idea, if you look up a list of famous people in Golden Dawn, I'm not going to rattle them all off, but you will see that there were a ton of very influential people that we knew in that group. The one that I can remember right off the bat is Bram Stoker, and he was the writer, and he was part of Golden Dawn also. And prior to this, we were discussing that this is why we see the same families in politics and entertainment and in academics. They all are part of these societies that are closed door societies. Crowley liked Golden Dawn because at this time, there was things like the Masons and the Illuminati and different type mm. of uh, private lodges. The thing is, none of them accepted women. And Crowley believed that it should be an equal platform for men and women alike, people of all kinds. The other thing they didn't like about Crowley, they didn't like about him, was they were very big into the ritualistic and meditation aspect of things. But Crowley believed that why not show somebody this road as fast as they can so that they at least know where they're trying to go. So he was very infamous in their group for using different types of narcotics to get people down that road and at the time a lot of the narcotics that we have now that are illegal weren't illegal in his time and were actually easily accessible so he had a few different illnesses that he was prescribed heroin for quite a few times where he actually developed an addiction to it but the one thing that really got golden dawn and, and started I guess uh, creating that that um, break away from that was this secret society. He was able to raise up through the ranks fairly quickly, and it wasn't a matter of like um, I don't know, like a uh, like a voting system. It wasn't like that. It was how well can you actually do the work that this esoteric system has? Can you achieve these personal plateaus? And he did it really, really fast. During this time, if you look at any, even currently this happens, if you look at any of these types of lodges, you have two sides of the coin where it's going to be the people who use it for unselfish reasons and the people who use it for selfish reasons. 
The only thing that they generally agree on is they don't agree that it's supposed to be for the masses because the good the guys who think they're the good guys, the, the unselfish people, think that this information should only go to people who are of good heart and want to use it to better everyone else. So they don't want it to they don't want to risk it falling into the hands of somebody who's selfish. The selfish people, for obvious reasons, say, why the hell are we going to share it with everyone else when we have all the power? We can just, you know, make all the rules. The thing with Crowley that pissed everyone off was he said, no, this stuff should be out for the masses and everybody should be able to read this. Golden Dawn had a few levels of like a tier system that he had to get through. And when he got through, they said, hey, listen, by the way, you know, you did really good. You're at the top of the hill here, but we want to tell you something. There's a secret level that we don't tell anybody until they get to this level so that nobody even asks about it. We'd like to initiate you into it. So they did. And they taught him everything. And they said, just don't tell anybody. <laughs> Fucking guy turned around and wrote a book about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> published it and pushed it out to everybody he could get his hands on. Like anybody who wanted to read it. He was one of the people that believed that this type of information should be out to everybody. And essentially, what the information of Golden Dawn and all of these esoteric societies really... Well, we just lost your new one. I can't hear you. Then they had ways to make that happen so it was manifesting their own destiny and that was came from the one line that everybody knows it's very familiar from one of his more famous books the book of the law which was do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law love is the law love under will and what that actually means inside of the chapter is what these guys are saying is find your true will what do you really want what are you passionate about what what do you love and then manifest that in front of you. And so this is what he was teaching everyone how to do it. And this is what the groups didn't want everyone else to know how to do because they didn't want it to interfere with theirs. The other thing was that I have to say uh, that I was very, I, I, I'm on his side with this. He was into a lot of mystical practices. So all of those weird psychic kind of things that you see at, you know, those little shops or at the psychic fairs or something, all those people who claim to be healers or something along those lines, they charge for their services. But in Golden Dawn and uh, especially through Crowley, they believed that that was the wrong thing to do because they believed it, it was diminishing the work itself so you could do it for someone but you couldn't charge them for it and now so now all of the charlatan aspects didn't like this guy either because he was going around teaching people how to do it themselves so he made a real fast hard impression and got a lot of people to dislike him pretty quickly i will say this down the road if you look at his writing and if you look at how the press viewed him at the time, he was actually smart enough to know that generally it, it, these societies that we're talking about, if we looked them up, we might not remember everybody who was in them. And we don't usually remember some of the 
what we would consider better people of society. But he knew we remember everybody we dislike. And so he had this idea that if he could be portrayed as an incredibly evil person that everyone would dislike, he'd get remembered and his work would carry on. And here we are 100 years later, still talking about the guy. Hey, you and I got a, a couple of questions for you. Sure. Um, the way that I, in my research and reading and understanding, I'm torn between what type of person he actually was. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. He was in Golden Dawn. He rose through the ranks, um, got to, to nearly the top. And then he came out with that uh, the, the Book of Law, which you referenced pre- before, and that was to um, while he was developing his own spiritual spiritual system known as Thelema, yeah, which is yes. the one that he went on and, and did. So my question is: Is he just another narcissist, like all these crazy people are that we've had in history? Like he. I'm going to take it back. Let's use Hitler because everyone knows Hitler. He he was just a narcissist and wanted to go to the top and rule everything, yada, yada. So when he was in um, Golden Dawn, he wasn't in control. So they're, a control, they're control freaks. So the only way that he could gain control was to start his own system and get a following. Or is it the flip side of that? In another thing you said, and is was he actually genuine and believe what he was doing? I tend to I tend to go down the path that these types of people that have come up through history that have this type of um, path, they're just nothing but plain narcissists. And um, yeah, that's uh, I can't get past that. So I want you to try and shed you know, some light. I, on- I will say yes. I I I honestly believe yes to both. Because he was one of the first people with this kind of information to say, look, we can't keep saying we're just going to focus on the good things about ourselves. We have to accept that we have a bad side to us, too. And in order to do that, we have to experience both. Now, is he a narcissist? Let me tell you how much of a fucking narcissist this guy was. <laughs> they were on a mountain. <laughs> yes, to answer your question the first time, and, and this will probably be the answer you're looking for, right? Yeah. So they were on a mountaineering expedition, right? They were going up, and they were running into some trouble, and they got caught in a storm, and he was the one leading the expedition, right? So somebody tried to throw a mutiny out there and, like, pull a coup off with the other mountaineers, and tried to dethrone him as the leader of the group. Well, it was unsuccessful. However, after that, they got hit by an avalanche, and there was a whole bunch of people that were stuck and, you know, screaming and trying to get help, and he stayed in his tent and let them all die. And then after that, he walked back down the mountain, walked right through the camp, and never even mentioned a word about it. Didn't give a shit. Collateral damage. (laughs) So, yes, to answer that, on the other side of this, he was the one who said, look, we, we as a, he, he was an arrogant bastard, I will say that, but he said, look, we have to get the, the grasp on that we are good and bad, and we need to bring that together. So some of the, 
teachings he did now he went around the world to gather this knowledge from every different culture he could so aside from a lot of it being steeped in um kabbalism he also did alchemy and he went back even further than that into the egyptian stuff and that's where he got some of the names of the more popular the more common things that we know about him so while he was doing that he made a statement that what he wanted to do was set some type of basis for his work to bring humanity to its next level of maturity and he said at one point in one of his speeches i've mastered every mode of my mind and in a way he was right and what he meant by that was instead of just being all one-sided and logical or instead of just being all one-sided and creative he was able to blend those two together and he felt that's what everyone had to do that in alchemy is the mixing of water and fire which we know don't mix but it's symbolic of what they're trying to do if you look at the 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 next step that he wanted to do we've had a very long time now of a very masculine dominated religious and political system now if you go back prior to that we had a very feminine uh, religious system that was dominant he believed that this next one was going to be the marriage of the two and in his work not only was the marriage that the marriage of the male and female as far as masculine and feminine it was also the marriage of both halves of your mind that's why his writings are so incredibly good is because he can convey emotion and high logic intelligence into the same thing so what he wanted to do was bring in what he called the aeon of horus now we don't have an english word for aeon it's uh, i believe greek and it's uh, a character that's the letter a and e together and what that time period stands for we say age a lot in english what that time period stands for was the the distance of time between two zodiac signs and why it was so important and why he was bring ushering in what he called the age of horus was because he knew that in 2012 just recently the divine cross and the mundane cross astrologically met and that brought in the new aeon that we're in the next zodiac sign the reason he used the egyptian on this was because he wanted the eye of horus the eye of horus which we've all seen and a lot of people call the evil eye is actually a breakdown of different egyptian glyphs and what it stands for is all of the five senses creating the experience of thought so it's it's pretty interesting actually if you ever get a chance to look it up it's pretty incredible i can do that later but that's what he wanted to do he yeah he wanted to bring humanity to its next level of maturity but he also knew that if you want to make an omelet you got to break some eggs and he was kind of a control freak dick on the way up there because he knew that he couldn't be a nice guy and accomplish what he did and so that if he left his legacy as a complete jerk, then we would really remember who he was. So <clears throat> you believe that, or I don't know whether you believe it, but you're saying that he actually wasn't delusional in his beliefs and he was doing this as a planned out path so that he could be remembered. Yes, he definitely wanted, his arrogance and pride definitely wanted to leave a legacy. 
but he wanted to leave a legacy better than anything that he found in his schooling, you know, at Cambridge, which is, you know, I'm a professor. I wrote a book on aeronautics. You know what I mean? He wanted to be remembered as I wrote a million books on what is the meaning of life? Why are we even here? But yeah, he, he definitely had some arrogance behind him. I will say that. And uh, it shows. It shows quite a bit. There were a lot of things in his life, in his personal life, that you'll see with his uh, relationships with people, with friends, family, wives. He was married a few times. And uh, he, he, was, he was quite a, quite a uh, hard-headed kind of person, I guess you could say. He wasn't an easy guy to get along with. And... He had, he had found what he called his will. His will was to make this magical spiritual practice, and that was it. Everything else, including the people around him, came second. So he even went as far as to describe what he was doing and, and make a statement on it. He was the first one that, and you'll see uh, certain groups here, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers in America, used an album, and they spell magic with a K. He wanted to leave his legacy everywhere he went. He started doing that because he wanted to uh, differentiate between what was practical magic and what was illusionary stage magic, what he called real magic. And he knew that that was just a science that we hadn't caught yet. But that was his thing. He wanted to leave that legacy, and that was more important to him than anything else, including the people around him and family that, you know, friends and family that he loved. Yeah. Another thing that I'd like to hear your thoughts on and explore a bit more is how governments use people like um, Alastair. Now, I've, I see a lot of parallels with a podcast that we just did recently being Manson. Um, you know, the, the, it seems to be the same narcissistic traits and desire to be a leader, a cult type thing that Manson was in this this is this Crawley guy or Crowley guy it's it's almost the same template just a, a different vehicle that the, he used to get there is that what attracts the governments to people like this because they know yeah. there's going to be a subset of people within that that are easily controllable and from what I understand it was it was like the British and the Germans they were using these people or they were injecting peoples into these cults to disseminate these people around the globe to infiltrate and spread whatever they needed to spread and gather whatever they needed to gather. It's just an easy way for governments to spread their tentacles. Yes, I, and I do wonder because, like I said, these are closed lodges. So if you're going to do intelligence work, there is no better place than to do it than places like this. I wondered a few times because Manson we spoke of with MK Ultra was very easy to get what motivates him and it wound up being childhood trauma he was always looking for family of some kind so they could use that but with Crowley it was very different and you got to wonder because this guy could blast through a fortune uh, of money in no time flat yet he was never short on cash <laughs> until the rest of in the end of his life he always had what he needed and so what was it that they were actually dangling in front of him to get him to work for them because otherwise he really didn't give a shit so what it was was said okay look if you want to you know forward your information we will get as much 
information on these subjects as we can we will send you to these places and that is what attracted him is because he was able to go to these places that were you know far off the map for him and find his way into these societies and the british intelligence was going to fund him for it and they said but at the same time we need you to do this for us right so i think one of the more famous ones was this was uh going in when well i'm getting a little ahead here but when he was in italy in sicily i believe he bought the abbey of thelema thelema was his religious sect and he bought a property with house there where they were allowed to practice all the time now he, he was actually kicked out at, at that time and this was you know between the world wars here the thing is, is that if you look at why the Italians kicked him out of Italy, it wasn't for being a complete whack job or practicing magic or a drug addict or anything like that. He picked the Abbey of Thelema because it had a really good view of the Italian fleet, and he got thrown out for espionage. It's in their paperwork that that is why they asked him to leave, and this is what really uh, blew the lid on everything because no one prior to that could possibly imagine that a peoples and a culture as proper and 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 well-mannered and just genuinely decent human beings as the british would use somebody who was such a complete whack job to do work like this it, it would never fit nobody would ever believe it so it was a great cover but when they kicked him out of italy they confiscated all his crap and that's when they found a whole shitload of paperwork left behind that were communications from British intelligence telling him what to do while he was down there. And that's when people started getting on the trail that he was actually working for these guys. I think uh, that uh, the Secret Service came to him when he was in Cambridge already. But that's just uh, my opinion because uh, the Golden Dawn uh, story uh, looks very arranged. Uh, why does he quit Cambridge? Why does he go to Zermatt in Switzerland out of nothing, out of nowhere? Why? So uh, the only reason to me is that the Secret Service said to him, look, there's this guy, Julian uh, Baker. Uh, he's a member of Golden Dawn. Get in contact with him and try to infiltrate this group with his help. And, you know, Ralph, I would say that that's, that's right, too, because if you look at the lifestyle he was living while he was in Cambridge and prior to that, there was nothing that any, you know, as we said, not only intelligence, but there were aristocrats who were very close to him. And there was nothing about this person that would attract an aristocrat to be friends with him. Nobody would say i would invite this guy to one of my high society parties the guy was a mess he was he was a menace so it does look like they picked up on this very early on i would agree that they had gotten to him way before that yeah and another thing sort of on that during about the wars like he was in um, new york and dc <clears throat> And he offered his services to the, the British and the American intelligence agencies while he was there. Or was it the other way around? Who knows? But funnily enough, he had contacts within the um, German-American community and a couple of propagandists 
it's there, like uh, George Sylvester Virek. And it's like he used that to penetrate um, the Germans, you know, in America to help shape their opinion and sway America's stance on the war. And I just wonder, was he actually, you, you, you know, it did, was he a double agent? Was he actually I working so. for the Germans? I, I, I think the British sent him and to give him credibility, he infiltrated this uh, German-American groups, especially this one magazine called The Fatherland, yep. where he became a writer for, he wrote some articles, which gave him then in this community credibility. And in Great Britain, in the newspapers, uh, he, they called him a traitor. So for the uh, uh, Nazis or the Germans, in uh, back then there was no Nazi. For the Germans uh, uh, back then in uh, US, it looked like he really uh, uh, was on their side. So he could influence a little bit the opinion of the people there. Yeah. You know, actually, and I'm sure you caught this one too, Ralph Bevo, I'll tell you, that was one of the other stories that came up in uh, one of the books that we were re referencing for our listeners was called Secret Agent 666. And the guy who wrote that is the one who did the giant uh, compendium of all of the different countries that threw Crowley out because they had caught him doing some type of spy work. Now, during the time that you're referring to, Bevo, he was actually, yeah, we, a lot of people believe he was, you know, double being a double agent. But the problem is nobody really knows who the hell this guy was working for. But it did seem like he still had a little bit of loyalty to his British upbringing. Because it looked like he was working for British intelligence more than he was working for any other intelligence for the majority of it. And during that time, he was the one who was saying he had, a, he had well, the author said that he had something to do with influencing the sinking of the Lusitania. And what the story behind that was, was that British intelligence was really getting worried about the situation in Europe. And they wanted America to back them and to support them during the war. But America was taking a neutral stance at the time. So they said, you know what? If the Germans hit one of their ships, it will cause a big enough problem it will cause such a problem over in the u.s that they will have no choice but to do some type of response so crowley turns around and tells the germans hey look you guys have all these u-boats and you're very effective with them and if you want to send a message to the americans and tell them don't come over here because we'll sink your ships we're not afraid of you the best thing to do is to sink the lusitania and that'll send a message to tell them to stay away Meanwhile, the actual message behind it was the British trying to get the Germans to do something that would piss the Americans off enough so that they would join the war effort. Oh, I mean, how, how, yeah, how deep does it go? And, and like another one that I've, I've sort of found a thread on was that he was feeding back um, to the British intelligence. Um, there was an anarchist plot to assassinate um, Mussolini and... Apparently, it was his information from the Germans that he fed back to the Brits that stopped that. So, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, what what I can't ascertain 
is who's controlling who? Obviously, Crowley's a smart man, and obviously there are smart people within the governments. Now, is he being used as a puppet, or is Crowley actually using the government and trying to mould his own, or is it tit for tat? Is it like a pendulum? One day one side wins, the next day the other side wins, and in the end they both sort of get what they need. I can't work this out. To me, this is an extremely complex um, subject and has so many tentacles, it's ridiculous. I will say... No? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I will say, Bevo, I agree with Ralph in the same thing. You have a guy that's this smart, and he, you know, obviously doesn't care about what, like, the the regular um lifestyle would be if if he cared about having like a decent life he could have as a child inherited the brewery and just you know stayed in his hometown and and did that but he didn't care about those things but he was highly intelligent and he was motivated by information he wanted knowledge the thing is at one point in time they actually british intelligence said kind of a uh, hey thank you we won't be needing your services anymore because he was such a recluse and they said look we can't if we try to pull one over on this guy and he figures it out because he's smart enough then he could you know really do some damage to us in the intelligence community because the amount of shit that he knows so let's just say thank you and let's give him a whole bunch of money and say we won't be needing you anymore but then they actually asked him to come back later on so the thing is, is that it has to work on both sides because unlike uh, like the Manson character, you can't, you know, M- Manson, I believed was fooled into a lot of what happened. Crowley, I believe, was negotiating on what would happen. There was no way you were going to tell this guy what to do without him getting some personal benefit out of it. Yeah, I, I see that. And But to that, though, you can still negotiate with somebody and make them think that they are actually winning when they're not. And bear in mind that the governments, you know, they've got rooms full of smart people. He's just one smart mind. So, you know, obviously the plans go 10 steps, 20, 100 steps deeper than what's actually happening at the time. And there's a lot, there's a big, long twisted plan where they're trying to get to the end and it's just a bunch of chess moves along the way so i yeah i I still can't i i'm not smart enough to be brutally honest mate i can't work out actually what's going on here and who's doing what you know chess moves uh, he was a good chess player as well yeah Yeah. that he was i will say that uh one of the things that i could see if you look at he, what he wanted and his i guess character flaw of being that narcissistic and and that arrogant he wanted his own religion he actually literally called it crowleyanity just to piss <laughs> off his christian background but uh he wanted his own religion and he wanted followers but he had to be able to have the ability to go out there and carry and have all this knowledge and carry it forth so if he was pissing off these secret societies as much as he was, British intelligence had to keep him out of their crosshairs and he had to be able to do what he wanted to do. I want to be the leader of my own, you know, uh, lodge, my own, uh, like secret society. Okay, great. 
But they have to let him do that because at any point in time, they could have stepped in and said, you know what, you're crazy. We're throwing you right in jail. We could do it for any number of things. But they let him do that. And I think that was the weakness that they uh, exploited. But on top of it, I think the strength that he had for being able to do what most people couldn't do. And again, no one su would suspect a guy like this working for the intelligence community for you know the British. I think that's also what worked on his favorite was that they were giving him what he needed. He was able to go to do different things at different places. Like, I'll give you an example. He did with his wife a ritual in, uh, it was either in or near one of the pyramids of Egypt. It was in and the Great Pyramid. and in It the was in the Great Pyramid. The, it was in the chamber of the king, so a very special place very special place you can't just walk into that place and go hey you know what i'm gonna set up and do my own friggin ritual here there it, there has to be a lot of friggin strings pulled in order to do that so when he what the kind of stuff he was asking for was really big but he was producing enough work to be able to pay for that and enough of the intelligence that they wanted and enough of the influence that they wanted but when you walk into Egypt, you can't just go, hey, you know what? I want to go inside the king's chamber. They're like, fuck you, man. There's no way. Especially this crazy guy, you know? So, but they let him do it. They actually let him do it. And wasn't it also, uh, this is where he wrote the book? Um, yes. Uh, after he'd yes. been in the pyramids, reportedly he came back to his hotel or whatever. And the, the, the book... The will, or whatever it's called, the the sorry, the, the, book law, of the law, the book of the law, that was written in an afternoon back in the hotel after being in the pyramids. Yeah, yes. let me let me tell you a little bit about his uh, esoteric work that was interesting about this. So prior to that, you know, and we even see it now, but uh, every re there's there's only two religions on earth mine and everything else is evil you know what i mean like there's so many people that have that perspective that their religion is the only right religion that there is so a lot of them have the good and the bad it's a very easy thing for people to digest when there's only two sides of it it's either good or it's evil that's it right so they all have a lot of overlapping systems of what they would call demons and Crowley was the first one to start to work in, are these demons actually separate living energetic entities of some kind, or are they psychological parts of our brain that we have to come to terms with? So he was the first one to say that, look, when people say, you know, uh, you're... you're have a, you know a you know this person has you know that everybody says oh this person's got demons right he was the first one to start to question in modern times anyway of is it an actual entity or is it part of the person's brain that they're having a hard time reconciling so with that book and the work that he was doing in egypt was actually some of the more important work that he did as far as the occult work was because what he was doing was he was now trying to get into, let me see if I can pull something else out to be able to, to actually, and, and he was absolutely fearless, to actually be able to contact another entity and let 
this entity in, in you know in um uh, what do you call that? Just kind of like possess him or get into him just to see in a scientific way if this was real or not. And it wasn't the only time he did this. He bought Boleskine House in Scotland specifically to perform a ritual where you're trying to get in, uh, trying to deal face to face with each one of these demon archetypes in this Abramelin. Uh, the name of the ritual was Abramelin ritual. And you're not supposed to stop it until you get to the end. And when you get to the end, the idea is you're supposed to meet your higher self, your consciousness, to try to get divine answers. The other thing is, is that you're supposed to stop the ritual, because if you do, you're stuck on one particular whatever demonic archetype that you were on. He actually had something pressing that he had to go to, and he stopped the ritual. When he was in Egypt, he did a particular ritual necessary practitioner to stand inside of what would be like what most people would know as like a magic certain movies he intentionally stood outside of this thing he was trying to get possessed to see if there was anything actually out there now did that did he write that book or did a higher intelligence something that had possessed him write, write that book and if you look at when he changed his name and talked about the being that he was contacting. He actually drew portraits of the being, and the name was Awas, which everybody is kind of uh, suspects that it meant I was. And he used to say, the view is the clearest when you're standing on a pile of your own dead bodies, because what he meant by that is you never want to be the same person today that you were yesterday, so you always want to keep improving, keep learning, things like that. And when he did all of this stuff, there was a, a pretty drastic change in his personality. So the question became, did he actually write that book? I mean, how many people do you know could pull something off like that in such a short period of time right after this really intense ritual? Or was it some other entity that was actually possessing him in the process? So, yeah, that's, that's a question for the ages right there. Mm, that's very interesting. I, yeah, is is any of his like is any of his stuff still existing today? Does do, is oh, yeah. there is oh, there yeah. a cult that still practices what he did oh, yeah. Yeah, at, yeah. by the Book of Law and and how big is it? Actually, his books weren't that long. I, I downloaded most of his library. A lot of the stuff is free online. There are places all over the place. I actually have a lodge not too far from where I live that's still one of the OTO, the uh, Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, the Eastern style uh, temples. And uh, they still practice. They're still out there. There's still uh, Thelemic groups all over the place. There are still groups of people that are uh, online that just do uh, readings of his. Uh, there are communities on Reddit, actually. As a matter of fact, you can find social media groups that still follow a lot of his stuff. You'll see them introduce themselves by saying 9393, 93, which is the numerical word for love in Thelema when uh, the characters come down. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're still out there. They're still everywhere, and there's still tr people trying to perfect what he did you'll notice that when you read his stuff there is no advanced books because once you've gotten the 
point of it once you've gotten the basics down it's like any other skill now it's up to you to advance them in a way that you are good at so he decided at one time when he started the aa system the astrum argentium system that he put together i think it was an eight-step process of how to achieve something really, really good as far as willing something into your existence that you really wanted. So we put these eight steps together. The thing is, it had like a 90-something failure, 90-something percent failure rate. And the reason why was because everybody was just skipping to the very last one at the end. Nobody wanted to do the work. So that's why he always used to say the, his term was the great work. The great work is not something that you just pick up on a weekend and then you're done with it. This is something that continues your whole life. So in order to make these things happen, it's not just like reading that book called The Secret and then all of a sudden you're magically rich. No, you have to do this over and over from the beginning and get better at it through time. So, yeah, there is a huge contingent of people out there that still do his work. And that book, the book of the law, being one of his mo more popular ones, that one actually uh, was uh, translated into a few different languages. They've used it in quite a few places. Uh, Boleskine House had burnt down <laughs> mysteriously a couple of times. And uh, the other thing was uh, the Abbey of Thelema is still there, but they're very particular on who they want to have this stuff because like there were so many followers of this guy every musician every writer everybody i think it was uh, ralph uh check me on this i think it was jimmy page or robert plant one of the two owned the boleskine house at one point in time robert plant robert plant he yeah. could not stay long there because he got spooked he said <laughs> it's not the place uh, where you can live because the people that want to to get these places and pick up on his work are just as dangerous as he was with their forms of religious practice and their their thoughts on how things should work. So now there there are really restrictions on how to get there. Luckily though, the writings and the books are out there and things like he was very famous for his tarot deck. Now he was the one who approved the deck but it was um i can't think of her name right now there was a woman who actually painted the entire deck and it's been on display before because the original sheets were very large but it was the most com complex deck that had ever been built for tarot i mean he was into everything and one of the things that i have never been able to uh, uh figure out exactly who has this one but in one of the places that he lived later in his life he actually started painting the problem it was, was in, in italy it was it in italy ralph you know yes. what i'm gonna say right there was a painting that people who used to complain that he painted this picture hung it on the wall they would go to sleep at night wake up the next day and the picture would be different things in the picture would move so his work is still out there. There are still a lot of remnants of what he did. What he did for the magical practice community was quite amazing, bringing in, say, that, that age of Horus, that aeon of Horus, and trying to bring humanity to its next level of maturity, being able to use these personal innate abilities. What he did for the intelligence communities, who knows? I mean, he really could have shifted the tides of quite a bit of stuff that happened between governments during the war. And looking at his heritage, I mean, 
he laid the foundation. I mean, if you look at it uh, from a cultural perspective, he laid one of the foundations of how we live our lives today. Um, Which was that, Ralph? Yeah, do what you want. Do what you feel, what you really want, truly want. And yeah. uh, in the 60s, a lot of those artists, like, he was one of the characters on the Sgt. Pepper's album by the Beatles and so on. Uh, in the 60s, with Free Love and, and Free Yourself in general, uh, they uh, uh, got back to his uh, theory of uh, do what you want. Yeah, and, and yeah, because this was the foundation for all the hedonism uh, we we see nowadays. There was a very you know during his time when he grew up with you know the religious backgrounds that he had, they were very uh, oppressive type of existences. There was a very denying <laughs> yourself of a lot of things in these religions, and it was. Um, like you weren't allowed to be happy or do fun stuff like it, it was it was deemed bad yet he was the one who said hey you know what maybe it's not that bad he was very specific also on do what the thou wilt what is your actual will he was very specific on not trying to impose your will on someone else's will so he said it is more important to be true to yourself and do what you actually love than it is to try to take over someone else's will and control them. So in that aspect, it was, uh, that's, I don't know, it was, it was something to see. I mean, you know, it was turbulent times, a lot of changes, and he was a very friggin', you know, far ahead of the rest of us kind of guy at that time. I mean, that, that particular thread is very admirable because and it sort of to me it it conflicts like his narcissism and his desire to develop what he developed saying that you know you can have your own will but don't push it on other people it's a it's a direct conflict and you know when you look at some of the other religions slash cults i'm going to call them and etc they've got their belief system and that's fine but as far as you know going out knocking on people's doors etc etc trying to jam it down other people's throats is unacceptable in my opinion um, right but he he you know has got this cult or religion or whatever it is but he's saying to people do it develop your own little thing and then don't um, don't jam it down other people's throats. So I, I you know, I subscribe to that. So uh, I can't really, can't really understand uh, how you yeah, how it, you can have those two opposite sort of how can beliefs. you balance those two? Yeah, right. But he was very adamant about it. It showed up in a lot of his works, and that was what his whole goal and his whole point was was we are not just a one type of you know cut out creature human beings are are very complex and very you know have different sides and not only that i mean do what thou wilt also throughout time was it, it might not there are some people who would say like let's just give an example as a musician where that person's true passion and their true will was to be a musician their entire life. But then you had people who 
whose will would change throughout their life. And they wanted to be different things and do different stuff. So he was the one who was able to balance out both of these things. And we're so unused to that. We're the ones who have a hard time reconciling the fact that he was able to do that. He was saying, you know what? Twist, turn and bend the universe and make it do whatever you want. Do whatever you want, truly want. And teach everyone else how to do the same thing, but definitely don't try to impose on someone else's will. Yet, he was a complete narcissist. <laughs> you know, mm. so he truly did have that balance. When he said, I've mastered every mode of my mind, he's probably one of the closest people we've ever seen to actually doing that if he had, if he had actually done it. Yeah. And one other thing I want to ask you, new one, what's the, relevant, uh, what's the uh, relevance of the hat that he wears? It's sort of iconic with with him that one with the picture yeah where he's got his thumb sticking out yeah you know what i'd have to look that one back up i'm actually not really sure but that's like the most famous picture of him um he wasn't afraid to delve into the dark side of things that that you know all things considered back then so a lot of times when you have somebody doing that that particular hand gesture with the thumbs out a lot of these things are like the darker side of the occult information. So it, it, that it would be representative of one of the particular types of demon. And you'll see people now doing particular hand gestures. Uh, a lot of politicians we see do it where they put up the hand gesture and we say that's for Baphomet or they might say that's Luciferian. He wasn't afraid to do that particular thing either. I've seen the hat picture a million times. To tell you the truth, I never really looked it up to see exactly what the hell it was for. <laughs> got to yeah. be honest. Now you got me curious. Yeah, I just thought there might have been some relevance to it because, unless that's just the picture somebody there, first started with. Yeah, there, there must be because I think it's raw. I don't know, uh, uh, but it, there's an Egypt. I think in Egypt, uh, God is uh, uh, on the front of his head. You know what, actually, Ralph, that would make sense if it was. If you look up the lineage of the gods of the Egyptians and go back, the eye of, that eye for Ra, uh, he wanted to bring in the age of Horus. And if you go backward through the lineage of Horus, Ra was one of the original, um, not descendants, what do you call that, ancestor. Ra was one of the original ancestors of Horus. So there's probably a good chance that he pulled it backwards that far. And all of those stories with that all come into each other. Everything has to do with what particular aeon are you in? What particular part of the Zodiac are you in? Because every ancient culture said, well, it's going to change from this time to this time. But they all had an origin as far as they could go back. And as far as the Egyptians were concerned, that's probably as far back as Crowley's information could go. He probably, yeah, if that is raw, that would make sense. Because that's about the earliest Egyptian information that we have written that we can study. He certainly did get around the planet. Sorry? You wanted to say something? No, that's fine. I was just saying... um, he certainly did get around the planet and has a lot of influences from, you know, the four corners of the earth in, in what he, he was doing. He traveled Mexico, China, he, in Europe, everywhere, uh, North America. He was in a lot of places to study uh, cults there and 
rituals and and uh, the substances they use for their rituals to to get a universal view on how uh, or a global view how uh, the world looks at at uh, such phenomena yeah my my sort of um, feeling is <laughs> i feel like i want to speak to the bloke because <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't know whether whether he's smart, whether he's crazy, whether he's actually onto something, whether he's not onto something, was he being controlled or was he controlling people or is he in at the heart of it apart from his narcissism, uh, uh, you know, trying to do good. I just know that everything we're reading is just somebody's observation and their belief of what he was doing because um, it's well after the fact of his death, etc., etc. So I... I just don't, I can't make a decision either way of where I actually sit with this guy. You know, for me, for example, like Manson, I know where I sit, um, pure evil and, you know, deserves to be where he is in the, my the, opinion. The, but the, problem is we are, the problem is we are talking about the guy who was born 1875. Yeah. And such a life during this time, I mean, we know it from rock stars from the 60s and 70s, but not only, not even them were so extreme. Uh, like he lived his yeah. his life, like like how free he lived his life. Yeah, it's crazy. And that was a big that was a big message that he wanted to get out there was living your life freely and not seeing any barriers. And I'll tell you what, Bevo, <laughs> if you, I have to laugh because. Uh, one of the old Ozzy Osbourne songs that me and Ralph were talking about was Mr. Crowley was written about him. And the very last line is, I want to know what you meant because yeah. this guy was so off the rails sometimes it, and it, it what happens is, is that this comes into play when you start to like, I've done it before. I bought a book by Stephen Hawking's. And I tried reading it, and it was so far above my pay grade. I had a hell of a time even getting through it. I literally barely understood any of it. With Crowley, it was the same way. I, I was much older when I w ran into his works, so I already had a pretty decent amount of background in it. But the thing was, you're trying to get a feel for the guy. I, and there are some recordings that you can find out there that are still recordings of his actual voice. So I would try to put his actual voice into the readings of his works. The thing was, on top of being super smart and arrogant and very intense and intellectual, he also was a friggin' jokester. He stuck puns into all of his writings. He was like the eternal... You know, like, it's like when you look at a guy and you go, oh, you're a stupid ass for using a dad joke. He did that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That was his thing. So it's really hard to get a beat on who this guy was. And the more you read his stuff, the more complex it gets. Like you said, there's so many tentacles on this. It's just out of this world. I mean, and me and Ralph were talking about it beforehand. He was just one of the most interesting guys. And yet not everybody knows about him. Not too many people really know who he was. Yeah, we we should think about wrapping this up. New one. Um, we've got Ghost okay. down there that said he's. I'm going to stop forever. the recording right here. Yeah. All right. There we.